Right. And I think, I think that's a misconception of some people who they, they, when they, they think like, Oh, I need to be good at everything. And you actually see the downfall of a lot of CEO founders because they want either control over everything inside the organization or they don't want to admit that they're not good at everything. And where you see CEOs and founders really um, grow their company is when they can be very in tune as to what their strengths are and what their opportunities are so then they can hire the people to plug those holes and they always I mean it's so cliche but it's always hire people who are smarter than you are and that's absolutely the approach I've taken um, as much as I can afford them you know I can't go and afford the you know the CFO of Salesforce but you know you, you balance experience and what you can afford at the time but you try to hire really smart people Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone, and welcome to Real People where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers, and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. From growing up as an active, outdoors-obsessed young girl with a big imagination and a notebook of business ideas, Christy Zulke has launched and exited successful startups and is now the CEO and founder of Knowledge Hound, a global tech company working with brands as diverse as Spotify, Lyft, Procter & Gamble, and Whirlpool. Christy is passionate about the role of data to help the world better understand people and how decision makers can better make sense of the huge volume of data available to them. We go for a wonderful journey from Christy's willingness to embrace thinking different as a child that has remained into adulthood to her insight from sitting down in the lounge rooms of people in developing countries and that happy means different things to different cultures and it is critical we respect this. From the joys and lessons from raising $5 million and successfully launching and growing Knowledge Hound to what makes the US, Australia and Europe culturally different and similar and how Christy finds Zen in an ever uncertain world and much, much more. Let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning... Thank you for joining uh, us today, Christy. From where, where, where about are you based? I'm in the states. I'm yeah. in Chicago. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. What's Chicago like? Uh, well, right now it's summer, yeah. so it's like really hot, and it's on Lake Michigan. So there's like a huge beach volleyball scene. So everyone's at the beach on the weekends or on their boat in the water, and and then everyone's outdoor eating outdoors, eating and drinking in the summer too. So That's yeah, good. it's All great. Right. It's a great city. So all of these interviews, oh, I, the first couple were a little bit different, but the basic way I've started is right back at the beginning. What were you like as a young girl? Oh. Bit of a curveball, <laughs> but what, what were you like as a young girl? You know, I had a extensive imagination. So I loved playing with Barbies, loved playing with G.I. Joes. I loved <laughs> playing dress up. Um, my sister and I had this game where we had like roles. There was, you were either like Jenny or, uh, Diane. And there were like, it was, and Diane was the mean girl and Jenny was the nice girl. And <laughs> we would trade off who would be who. Like we just, I just had an extensive imagination. I loved playing dress up and all of that. Yeah. Okay. You, were you a, a studious child or imagination you said yeah i really wasn't that studious honestly i really was into the outdoors my i grew up in the state of wisconsin and that's very outdoorsy like known for their farmland and i grew up hunting uh my dad would take me deer hunting when i was in sixth grade and starting when i was in sixth grade and um we went bird hunting and so i've always been outdoorsy uh but never really studious i would say i got okay grades but i never was energized by learning in school or uh, I never even was top of my class, but I was always curious. That's good. That's good. And that's been an interesting theme and pattern for researcher types and people, people into insights that often they, they were curious kids. But yeah. that's, uh, that's good. Yeah. 
You studied at university? What, what did you study? Yeah, then? I went to Xavier University, which is a small school um, in, the, in Ohio, the state of Ohio, and I studied marketing and entrepreneurship. So I always knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I don't know why or how I knew that, but when I was in high school is when I started keeping a journal of all the business ideas that I had. Uh, so what were I, some of those ideas? Can you oh, think back? Oh, yeah. So um, there was this particular idea that I had when I was in high school about um, you, the ability to send in your grocery list into the grocery store and before you got there. And then when you get there, they give you a device. It looked in my drawings, it looked like a GPS. And at that phone, at that point in time, there were like barely, there was no iPhone or a smartphone. And there were definitely, and there was a bit of like the, the, my dad had a phone in like, in like a bag in his car, but that was it. So mm. it was, it was very imaginative because they, I, thought, well, when you get to the grocery store, they'll give you something that looks like a GPS and I'll show you exactly where to pick up all your groceries throughout the store. And then they'll coupon you throughout the store. And, um, so that was, yeah, that was 1998. How old were you, old were you when you came up with that? Um, idea? so 90, so I was probably about 15 or 16. Yeah. Okay. yeah. There we go. <laughs> Your dad wasn't, or parents weren't entrepreneurs, or so. Um, my dad grew up on a farm, and farming is probably one of the most entrepreneurial things yeah, you can do. So, um, and then also he ran a wind farm business inside of an, a large energy company. So um, he's definitely very entrepreneurial. And then my mother's father started his own architectural company. So I've just, I think it's actually quite genetic mm. as to the way I think. It? It's, it's, it's interesting. Is it the making money bit or is it the change bit or is it just doing something independently? You know, I could care less about money, honestly. <laughs> like, I don't even know what I would do with a lot of money. Um, that's just not how I'm motivated. Um, I'm very competitive. Yeah. It is, honestly, it's all about ego for me. It's like, I want to say that I did this really hard thing, which was think of this idea and like bring it to life. And so I think the imagination part of that is also okay. a piece of the driver of like, oh, I can imagine this. Why can't it be true? Like I can prove everyone wrong, everyone wrong that I can make this true. Yeah. So the imagination with Barbies is, turns into imagination for being an entrepreneur. And that's right. There we go. Yeah. From there, from 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 simple seeds, things grow. Hmm. So you there as uh, studying and and then knowledge hound. Mm-hmm. What. What got you to Knowledge Hound? What, what are those sort of critical steps in your life that got you to So, um, it's really interesting. So, when I was in college, I started my first business, and it was a video rental store, which makes me sound really old. <laughs> <laughs> and um, because of that, I sat on the board of entrepreneurship for the university, and I met this woman um, who was also serving on the board of entrepreneurship for the university, but she was sitting on it representing entrepreneurship. And she was working at Procter & Gamble at the time. And she was like, Christy, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I said, oh, I'm going to start another company. And she was like, oh, yeah? Like, what are you going to start? And I was like, I'm not sure. So she was like, okay. She's like, why don't you come and work for me at Procter & Gamble? We'll teach you how to grow billion-dollar brands. You make a $50,000 mistake. It's not that big of a deal. Um, and we'll teach you how to be a leader. And I was like, all right, that sounds like a good deal. Mm. So I went to PNG for six years, and but with the intent of knowing that I was there to just be a sponge and learn how to grow a company. And, and it sounded like your managers were, had that had that understanding as well. So this one, yes, they, you know, I think um, if it wasn't um, outright said that that's why I was there um, with all of my managers along the way, it was definitely very clear to them that I I thought very different than other people that maybe were at. Procter and Gamble. Okay. Um, so, and I think they embrace that. Like they really uh, leverage that a lot in how to think differently about our brands and our products. So you were, I think they call it like an entrepreneur or like, so you were thinking yeah. very entrepreneurial within Procter and Gamble. Right. Okay. Right. Yes. Yeah. How, how do you do that in a, in a business the size of Procter and Gamble? Um, I think you keep an open mind and you make sure that you spend a lot of time outside of the business as well as in the business. So uh, what I mean by that is I remember when I first got my first assignment at P&G, I was on the Always brand in Femcare, and I was in the insights group. And 
they said, okay, Christy, can you give a presentation on our, our consumer in a specific segment? And so what I did instead of give a presentation, I dressed up like that consumer and I pretended I was that consumer and you could tell like people were like oh my gosh this girl is crazy (laughs) but they loved it they'd like ask me questions and I'd answer like they're like okay what are your attitudes towards this and I knew because I knew the consumer so much from all the data that was in my head and in my reports I could I could pretend I was the consumer so I just kind of brought like a totally different way of thinking into the organization you're obviously very confident to be able to do to oh, do that, or did you oh, put on a? I is think, that is that acting? Is that? Like, I think it's actually being very naive. I don't think I had like. I guess maybe you could translate to confidence, but at the same time, I think I was just honestly like naive about the whole thing, mm. um, and I didn't even think I was thinking outside the box. I just thought that hey, this would be a really great way to do this. Uh, but I think also I've always been really comfortable in my own skin and I don't, I don't necessarily care what other people think of me. Um, now that, you know, that there's some days I definitely do, mm. but for the most part, I'm just kind of like, I am who I am and I, I don't, I'm not that critical of yeah. myself. So where somebody else would have thought about it and gone, Oh, and what if it gets awkward, but you've just gone, let's, let's just yeah. own this and do it. And yeah, who cares? why not? That's what do you great. got to lose? That's excellent. That's good. <laughs> so what brands did you work with? So I started on the Always brand, and then I had the opportunity to go work on the Gillette brand out in Boston, which was amazing. Uh, and then I had the opportunity after that to work on the Total Male Grooming portfolio, which included Gillette and Old Spice and some of other our little um, brands like Dollar Shave or um, the Art of Shaving. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's good. So. And you worked across different global markets? Yes, I did. One of my favorite assignments at P&G was when I worked on Gillette, and my job was to expand our business throughout the emerging markets. So I got to go and travel the world, and I sat on, like, the floors of Indian homes on on like their dirt floor cross-legged talking to them about shaving through a translator and of course they're like what is this german looking girl have <laughs> want, like wanted to know so much about my shaving habits but it was it was amazing like i, I really uh got to understand people at a personal level uh and understand like their motivations about work and life and it was a great experience for someone in their 20s yeah. what what are some of the observations at a helicopter view of those different cultural differences. Mm. You know, it's interesting about like what motivates people um, and what how their cultures are set up to motivate them. Uh, one thing that I went into in in India was I knew that they had the people that we were speaking with um, had arranged marriages, and I made an assumption that they wouldn't be happy. I don't like I don't know why I thought that that's just what I went in on as and I learned that there's like that they were very happy and they didn't know like they that that was the way things were and that was really brought a lot of happiness to them and so I think the happiness factor is defined very differently in different cultures and understanding that and figuring out okay what's happiness to um, someone who lives in China versus India versus Brazil versus Russia is very different, and all of it's very, um, very interesting as to how to pick that apart, understand how the culture impacted that. Yeah, that's, in- that's interesting. Of accepting those different cultural, um, yeah, variances, rather than sort of questioning why that culture behaves differently or does something different. It's just that's just who they are. That's just their that's just their norm. That's, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. That's yeah, cool. it's about embracing it and working with it, not, you know, not trying to change it or judge it. That's right. It's in, and it's interesting as the world is becoming more global in many ways and you can sort of reach out and touch anyone, anywhere uh, online. Uh, we're not homogenous. Those cultural differences exist and will always exist and, and understanding those differences is is critical, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And they're very real. I mean, they're absolutely very real differences. Yeah. And there's, they're not right or wrong. It's just different. Yeah, that's good. So Knowledge Hound, where, yeah. did that come straight after Procter & Gamble? Was that your, your... So what I did right after P&G was I created a smartphone app that takes pictures of moles on your skin okay. and analyzes their characteristics for skin cancer. Okay. So I developed that, launched it, 
And then I sold it like a year later. So it was a very quick build and launch. Um, I sold it to an investor in the UK. Um, and I learned a lot through that experience, like what I loved about tech, what I didn't like about it, um, what I loved about entrepreneurship, what I was good at, what I wasn't. And after I sold the technology, I went back to my, my journal of all my business ideas. And I said, okay, what's next? And I remembered this, I journaled about this idea that is now knowledge hound. And, um, I talked about how, when I was in a meeting at P and G, I had my GM turned to me and he was like, Hey, Christy, what percent of men shave in the shower? I'm like, I'm sure we know that we're Gillette, you know, it's on someone's hard drive somewhere. Uh, let me go find it. And I came back empty handed five days later and I was like, but I can, don't worry. I can fill, feel this quick study for you. And he was like, don't worry about it. We've already made a decision and moved on. And that's when the light bulb moment went off when I said, wow, like if we don't start moving faster as an insights organization, we are going to be left behind. And so that was really kind of the consumer need of what then I translated into a product that could feed that consumer yeah. need. Which so we, so we, ne- so we, we need that insight now rather than waiting for it or having to search for it. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me more about knowledge hound. Yeah. So, um, so what we do is we go into an organization and we ingest all of the consumer survey data that they have on their consumers. And then we layer on top a search engine and analytics platform. So you can kind of think like the combination between taking this concept of Google like search with Tableau like visualization and combine them into one. And what that enables for the organization is anyone, you don't need to have a, a market research background to go in and type in an open text question and then get a data point right out of that. Excellent. That's good. And how long has Knowledge Hound been going? Now? So we've been around for five years. Okay. Uh, true tech startup, raised about $5 million in funding, uh, and uh, we're based out of Chicago and growing. So it's yeah. very exciting. So what have been some of your lessons or yeah, what, what you've learned, what you've observed oh, over that five years? There's so much, I'm sure. So much. <laughs> so much. So much. Uh, I mean, everything from... You know, how to raise money, first of all. Like, I had no idea what a seed round was, a Series A, a Series B. Um, like, what's a VC? What's an angel investor? How to manage a board? Uh, how to hire people? Uh, I mean, there's been so many things that I've learned. I I do think, though, that the some of the biggest part, that one of some of the most important things that that I've learned about myself though has been that one, I am a true entrepreneur and that I'm like a visionary and I'm not good at the operations and details. Um, and so how I've realized how important it is to hire people around me who are really good at that mm. and to get those people on board fast, um, with me so that I can make sure I've got that piece covered inside the organization so that we can leverage my skills and my strengths inside the organization while others take care of the other piece. That's interesting. So again, your, your imagination as a child and entrepreneur and that ability to be able to visualize the future, but that can mean that there are gaps in some of those other bits that you either don't Absolutely. like doing or they're not. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think that's a, misconception of some people who they, they, when they, they think like, Oh, I need to be good at everything. And you actually see the downfall of a lot of CEO founders because they want either control over everything inside the organization, or they don't want to admit that they're not good at everything. And where you see CEOs and founders really, um, grow their company is when they can be very in tune as to what their strengths are and what their opportunities are so then they can hire the people to plug those holes. And they always, I mean, it's so cliche, but it's always hire people who are smarter than you are. And that's absolutely the approach I've taken Um, as much as I can afford them. You know, I can't Mm. go and afford the, you know, the CFO of Salesforce, but, you know, you, you balance experience and what you can afford at the time, but you try to hire really smart people. Where does that self-awareness come from? Is that external mentors or people you're close to? Is it about going having failures and then going, wow, I didn't like that. I won't do that in the future. Or is it, is it just inherent in, in yourself of knowing who you are? 
I think it's a combination of all of those things. Um, I have a lot of mentors and advisors. Uh, I think my parents were very good at coaching and they both also emulate high levels of self-awareness. So I think I've learned from them, just observing them. Um, I've also learned from just failing and, and I learned best by doing, like I wasn't that studious and I've never really, I've, I've always struggled with like, Oh, reading a book. And then now I know the answer and I'm going to go apply it. And it's usually where I read a book. I'm like, okay, that, that makes sense. And then I make that mistake in the business and I go, Oh, that's right. I'm not supposed to do that. And then, and so that's how I learn really is by doing. Mm. So I think it's a combination of all those yeah, things. Okay. Do you look at other businesses out there or entrepreneurs out there as like role models uh, that, that you look to emulate or you like what they've done or, and it could be in similar sectors or not? Yes. Uh, I actually tend to look at more of leaders that I versus businesses because I think there's so many different businesses that are um, that are different uh, than mine and so I look at a lot of leaders and say oh wow look what they've done with their That's business good. so in all the work you do with Knowledge Hound and, and the insights you're, you're pulling what if you are there trends or cultural patterns that you can see that are driving driving people humans that the key trends. Yeah. Well, so the trends that I see and cause I'm, since we're a software company, um, I see the trends I see are in businesses. And so as I think about like my business is my consumer and what I'm starting to see is that businesses who are thriving and doing well embrace bringing in new technologies into their organization and are constantly looking external uh, to hire people, but then also to bring in capabilities that they might need to complement themselves. Okay. Um, and especially, I even see that like through M and A. Like a lot of companies will be like, you know what, we can't do that ourselves. We need to purchase it. Where I've seen, what's been interesting is to watch companies fail and say, you know what, I'm just going to build that internally, or I'm just going to do that myself, and. Uh, and they don't they don't realize what they're good at mm. um, versus what other people can be good at. Yeah. And so it's been a very interesting trend that I've been seeing in the past like three or four years of watching companies actually fail and trying to be something that they're not. Yeah. That, that company having strong self-awareness as well, really, isn't it? Uh, having aware of what we're good at, what we're not. Absolutely. What we should do internally, what we should do externally. Right. Uh, and that, what we want to be, you know, I think that's, you know, are we uh, in the market research industry, especially like, do you want to be a services company that, that is a consultant and drives insight for organizations or do you want to be a tech company? And it's really, really hard to be both. Um, so how do you part the tech companies partner with the services and vice versa? Yeah. Okay. And being really, really clear about like yeah, sticking to your knitting, sort of sticking to your like what what your area is, rather than trying to be like, everything to everyone. That's right. Quite clear. <laughs> I earlier I, I heard you uh, discussing one of in the panel yesterday about uh, like the uh, going to networking events with IT people, so, so seeing what they're they're working on and discussing, uh, and it made me kind of think about like market research is very much of a field that has people coming from quite different disciplines. It, it, it's not that most people don't just study market research or even That's marketing right. Right. comes from different fields. Yes. What are the what are the area what are the the skills or professions or specializations that will be required more moving forward from market research? Yeah, so I am I'm less about like the technical skills and more and I think that's maybe comes from my background of not being a, a great student or that interested in it. I think the these skill set or the mindset that you need to have to be a great market researcher is curiosity. And that can come to life in so many different ways. Like I look at a resume and I'm going like, okay, how many different activities are they a part of? And that'll tell you if someone's really curious or mm. not. Um, leadership is key uh, because you are, sometimes you're, you're pushing water uphill a bit. You're 
challenging people to think differently because the consumer says you should think differently. Mm. And you have to be very convicted in knowing like this is the right direction because this is what the consumer says and mm. getting people on board with that. So leadership and persuasion skills are really important yeah. as a skill set. Yeah, that's good. Any any other, I guess, trends that you can see from a, a consumer perspective that maybe is impacting how tools such as uh, your business helps us to understand consumers better, the way in which people are doing what they do and how we overlay that to yeah. understand them better. Yeah, I think it's really about like, um, so at Knowledge Home, what we do is since we're gathering data from so many different sources and bringing it to, into one, it's really about synthesizing and, and understanding how do you recognize patterns across different pieces of research or different pieces of information? I think that, you know, um, technology will help us with that. But then it's going like, okay, here's here's the synthesis. Now, what does that mean? Like the so what is a key part of um, of what we need to do as an insights function or really anyone in a business situation. It's like, okay, here's the data. Here's what the finances are telling me. Here's mm. whatever this information is telling me. Now, what's the so what? How do I put this into action? Because that's really, too, what a, a piece of technology uh, can't do for us. And uh, and I don't think they it should. Like, it might be like, oh, here, increase your distribution here. But there's, maybe the tech says that mm. or whatnot, but we need to layer on top always like that human element of emotion and understanding the other elements that are part of the environment to go into that. So I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. And that that all comes together to help formulate an insight, a strategic insight. That's right. Is that right? That's right. So the technology or AI or machine learning will help us to find some good findings but won't necessarily find an insight. That's right. Is that right? So I, that, I it, totally agree. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. So, you, so robots can't find insights. That's right. Is that right? Yeah. I, that's what I believe. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I think for us, like Knowledge Hound serves you a data point and it serves you information. And it really takes, I mean, data is a fact. And so an insight is something where you take that fact but understand the truth and motivation behind that. So it's kind of asking like the so what. So what? Why is this happening? Um, and that is the part that I just don't think I know today machines can't do. And I'm not sure we'll ever get there. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a good thing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's right. There's a, there's, only a, there's a limit to what robots can, can do. Yeah. And uh, I had a Philip uh, Alvelda, Alvelda. Uh, who was an AI professor out of Washington, D.C., and he talked about the, the progress they're making in Robots been able to, yeah, understand, have empathy, to be able to have. But we're a long way off. We're still we're working on it, but we're. I don't think they'll they'll be able to create insights in the near future. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess other other patterns. I guess when you look at an insight, does that come from a lone researcher or insights practitioner? Does it happen from a whether it's internal or external, or someone using uh, Knowledge Hound, or does it come from uh, multi- uh, across a team coming together to nut out the findings and try to find what what this is all meaning and, and how do we drive this forward? I've seen it come from both ways. So okay. I've so when I worked on Gillette, um, when we were trying to solve our problem in India, where we only have like five percent share or something like that um, of the market. Uh, we did it as a team. So we all, we spent a week and immersed ourselves into the, in, into the consumer by going in home and understanding them. And then we come back together at the end of the day and think through it as, as a group and find insight that then drove action into launching a new product in India. Um, but I also find insight in self-reflection, um, meditation, mm-hmm. prayer, whatever you might want to call it for you, whatever works personally for you. But, um, you know, I just had like a realization the other, like a week ago, like, oh, wow, like this is what's happening inside our business. We need to start shifting focus. So I think it can happen either way. Um, but, you know, and, and, and through, you know, if, whether it's internal or external, I think also depends on if you're an introvert or an extrovert. 
Um, my husband's an introvert and so he processes a lot of things internally and he comes up with insights by himself. Mm -hmm. Um, most often I am an extrovert, so I process externally as well. And I find probably most of my insight with other people. Okay. One of the challenges for people who are responsible for, for research or analyzing data is they can, they might have findings, they might have really clear illustration of where opportunities for improvement or growth might come from. Mm-hmm. But they need, one, they need to be able to f- distinguish between what is an actual insight and what's just an interesting bit of information. And then the second bit is how do they drive that insight so it actually does drive that change? So you might have the best insight, but if, say, a decision maker doesn't agree with that, well, then it's just not going to move. So, yeah, That's thoughts right. on how do you how do you sew those those bits together of having it, knowing when it's an insight, and how do you have it so a decision maker actually can own that and, and drive that change? Yeah, I so I found the most success uh, getting influencing people when you bring them along for the ride. So when you line with them up front, here's the work that I'm going to do. Uh, here's how it's going to impact and benefit the organization. And let's do it together. Mm. Or um, here's the parts in which I'm going to include you in on. And so getting buy-in up front definitely has led to success on implementation of any kind of action after the fact. Uh, I think it's really hard to come back and do the work in a silo and then come back and be like, here, here you go. Here's all your insights and here's the action we Mm -hmm. need to do. I think it's all about how you understand how to persuade people, how you understand what their agenda is, what motivates them, what drives them, mm-hmm. and really matching that with with the actions that you're recommending as well. Yeah, that's great. What What are you looking at now that you see is going to be a, a key innovation moving forward? So whether it's for your own business or you're looking out there at how insights are created or even just broader in a technology sense of what's the... What's, what's, what's coming out? What's, what's the big, big changes? Yeah, so I think we, here at this conference that we've been at, there's been a lot of talk about um, blockchain, what's going to happen there, um, automate, automated reporting, passive data. I think for, I think the market's ready for automated reporting. Um, I don't think the market's ready yet for blockchain or for uh, passive data collection. And I'm not saying it won't get there. I just think the most early in uh, opportunity is for automated reporting. And that's really where Knowledge Hound is going, mm-hmm. which is like, how do you how do you make sure that your reporting is always on and is in a dynamic experience versus like that PowerPoint presentation, that static point in time? Uh, and how do we move the insights community to be more fluid and proactive rather than reactive? Mm. Products like Knowledge Hound, I'm assuming, make the analysis and reporting far easier. Mm-hmm. So you've got more time to find the insights. Is that's that right. right? Is that's that right. That's of- how we talk to a lot of our clients about, which is that, you know, a lot of what's happening today is that the marketing teams are lining up in front of the desks of the insight person going like, hey, can you do this data poll for me and that data poll for me? And can you look at the data this way? And, um, and that's not their data polling is not what they're getting paid for. Mm -hmm. They're getting paid for providing insight and action and how you're going to drive revenue with that insight Mm -hmm. inside that organization. So if we can give the insight function the ability to pull data instantly, and they're not really the data pullers, but they're adding their strategic thought on top of it, that's what's going to drive revenue inside the organizations. Yeah, that's great. Knowledge Hound is is working across the U.S. and other parts of the world as well. Correct, yes. So we have a lot of global clients. Do you see many geographic differences across the world? Um, you know, um, we don't. Um, and, I, I mean, we ingest... So the, the, the pain points are the same pain points the, in the U.S. to the U.K. to Australia? For our clients, they are. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing how consistent it is. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Excellent. What about from a consumer side? If you, if you look at it. Oh, man, the data I mean, or... Oh, yeah, the data is, like, completely different. Yeah. Um, you see lots of different trends on um, even country to country in Europe. It's very interesting, uh, the differences. Um, and that's really, you know, 
really interesting too to think about like how brands initially were like okay what works in one country we can just globalize it and put it in all these other countries mm. whereas really that's that's not the approach that can work i mean yes you have a global brand and you want to have the same brand voice across all those uh countries and continents but the execution how that comes to life really has some nuance to it when you're talking to different cultures, which yeah. is very interesting. Yeah. So that, coming back to the discussion we were having right at the start about uh, your time at Procter & Gamble and looking at India and how it was quite different to other markets, it's, it's really, for, for brands that might work on a global scale, it's, it's understanding those, those geographic differences and it's, it's accepting those and, and not having a one-size-fits-all. That's right. Uh, so it's very much like, in, I'm sure it happens in the US as well, but in Australia when you see that ad that was clearly came from, say, the US, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's a cringe because you go, wow, well, clearly they've just taken an ad from somewhere else. And, right. and it's just the, 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 the small, um, yeah, just the tone of voice or the way in which somebody speaks and, it sure. just, and, and starts to put that, that barrier in it as well. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Do you see, like, say, what, what's the difference, say, between your observation of Australia in your time in the last couple of days in, in Melbourne, mm-hmm. the last few days in Melbourne, either from an outsider perspective thinking about Australia or mm-hmm. what, what, what's, your, what's your thought there? You know, the, it was interesting when I... Um, this is my second time to Australia, and uh, my first time was about 10 years ago, so it's it's been a long time. Um, but when I got off the plane, I was like, oh, I forgot that Australia, to me, from my perception of li- growing up in the U.S., but traveling frequently has been that Australia seems a very good combination between the U.S. and Europe. Every time I go to Europe, I'm like, wow, everything's so small here. <laughs> and then and then I spend a long time in Europe and I get back to the U.S. and I'm like, oh my gosh, everything's so big here. Big and in terms of buildings like the and... buildings. Like our homes are so big. Like the bathrooms are so big. The bedrooms are huge. Our beds are ginormous. Like everything just seems soft drinks. Like, <laughs> oh, soft drinks. Oh my gosh. Like every everything's like super size. Like the medium, the medium or the small in the U.S. looks like the large in Europe. Like yeah. it's unbelievable um, the size difference on everything. And so um, when I landed though, I was like, oh right. Like Australia's got this really good company for me as a person from the United States of like there's still big things like to me this seems like very even this conference center it's like very big and it, it reminds me more of home than Europe um, but at the same time there's like the trolleys in the in the airport that look like the European trolleys and you've got you've got so many trains here which is amazing like the transportation is more like a european transportation city Mm -hmm. whereas the u.s we only have about three or four major cities that have decent transportation um so i think it's a really great mix between um the u.s and europe do you have a perspective on australians as entrepreneurs Ooh, as entrepreneurs either just a perception you have um, Before you came to Australia, or even just observing you know, the last I, few days. I mean, just from like pop culture and what I know of, um, I I think they're um, pretty entrepreneurial, in my opinion. Mm. Um, I've always actually kind of always thought about it as, as such, like very uh, uh, innovative country um, with some some forward thinking progress too. Like I almost think of it too as maybe like maybe it's just because I haven't spent a lot of time here, but I also think of it as like a great place to be like the U S there's so much, there's so much pressure on the U S and it's in the spotlight and especially in like politics. And it's so negative. Whereas Australia and the U S has a great, like you guys just seem like this happy place. (laughs) And, and I think that positivity and optimism, or at least that perceived positivity and optimism and maybe less pressure maybe can help you guys with innovation i don't know but yeah, it's just okay. like the, from an outsider's so perspective feels... very, very open and also you guys are very friendly like super friendly and to me that that translates into optimism and i think that's a critical key in to be any entrepreneur is you have to be naively optimistic in ways because you run across every day people are telling you why your company won't last why it won't work um, what are going to be the challenges that you're going to need to overcome? And those are likely impossible. And so you have to be this optimist, this eternal optimist, mm. um, to be able to get through it on a day to day basis. Mm. So having that positive culture 
that you have as an observation of Australia is an important part of all of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I think it's a major asset that you guys can leverage yeah. to be great entrepreneurs. Yeah. And you made some comments about the US. So what your observation of the US at the moment and its culture, you sort of said it's got some challenges. And yeah. Yeah. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, well, I mean, we've just got, um, I mean, especially right now, it's hard to know what's really going on inside of our country because the media pulls us in different directions. And, um, and so when we don't know what the truth is half the time, um, and then also we have a president who tweets and I think, (laughs) I think it's at first I was like so annoyed by it. I'm like, why is he using this platform to make these crazy statements? But at the same time, I think it'll be really refreshing um, to have a president that tweets in the future, whoever that candidate or whoever that person is in the future, because it does give you a window in. You don't have to sit and wonder, what does he think mm. or what does she think, whoever that person may be, because it's just out there. Mm. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that's going to be the future now of any politician that we have. Mm. Um, Expectation. It's going to be, we're going to, yeah, we're going to have, we are going to know exactly what they think with no filter from the media. And I think that is important. So, I mean, no one's guessing what's on President Trump's mind at the moment. (laughs) But still there seems to, I think he was suggesting that that level of uncertainty in the U.S. of what's happening. Oh, but, well, it's uncertainty in the sense that, like, you then take what he's tweeting and then the media one set of media spins it one way and then another set of media spins it the other and you're just kind of confused overall of like what are you supposed to know what are or what are you supposed to be thinking about this is this positive is this negative um and there's a lot of fluff too there's a lot of fluff on um a language that isn't necessarily fact and that's going around Mm. and so what really matters, in my opinion, is our lives being improved and is life better in the U.S. than it was four years ago, 10 mm. years ago, 15 years ago. And so we have a president that's been in the seat for two years. Have we seen changes? I haven't, but I'm also not really part of the demographic that needs help and wants help and needs change. Mm. And so I think we need another two years to know, like, hey, is this really working? Because right now it's just a lot of talk and mm. a lot of... Um, who said this and who said that, and it'll results will speak for themselves. Yeah. From an outsider perspective, looking to the US, he's very de- he's very divisive and polarizing, and yeah, and it, it, it's and it, I guess it's a I I can't remember a, a president anywhere that's had so many. It's almost he's he's so bizarre that it's funny. Almost. Oh yeah, it is. Like it's, <laughs> is like, this it for really, real? And that's right. You can't believe it's real. You're like, really? Is this is this happening? Like, is is this for real? But, it, um, and it is very much. Um, it's the media paints it as that we've got a very polarized country. I know some people who've done a lot of research on voters, uh, and. I was actually having a conversation with Diane Hessen, who's the founder of C-Space, the other day. And she was hired by the Clinton administration to study swing voters. And she was saying that you inter- she interviewed, I mean, she interviewed hundreds of people throughout the campaign. Um, and still today, she continues to talk with these same people and mm-hmm. track their journey. And she said that we are we are less divided than what the media is painting. Okay. And I think what gets attention is definitely what is getting attention is the division, but, and there are definitely people who are divided, but I think there's actually more people who are aligned, not necessarily with, I'm not saying necessarily aligned with the president and his views, but aligned with each other, which is we just want to, we want our health care to be fixed. We want to have, make sure our unemployment stays low. Mm. Like we're all generally humans and we want the same things. It's just, we're not quite as divided as what the media is maybe painting. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, and I, it's a worldwide issue of uh, people buying, like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You want that, that <laughs> basic needs accounted for and that safety right. and security. And when you're not sure, and it's, it, it happens in Australia as well, that we're not, we don't feel safe and secure about our politicians and knowing what they're doing, then 
it does create an uneasiness right. about the future. So I'm, I'm assuming that's sort of the same sort of thing in the US. Of there are people all around the world, and in the US included, who have got real challenges, and they they just want those basic things. They want jobs. They want a that's good right. healthcare, right. healthcare uh, system. Right. Um, they right. don't really care what what's being tweeted or that's right. they just exactly. want they just want it fixed. And that's I think right. that's and I probably think think, think that's where. I think Trump represented the polar opposite of of what's been had before, and I think it was just a way of going. Well, what's working? What was it? a sense that what the that the, 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 there were there were gaps that needed to be fixed? So let's get the extreme That's right. <laughs> version of a politician. That's right. Even if it is, um, yeah, even if it is a people bit. want to change, and they saw him as change. Yeah, I mean, right. they saw him as change, and they and he is great at um, making statements that are sound very convincing um and and so i hope he can deliver those statements you know i really do because if he can um you know if he can give jobs back to to people who were the coal miners um and i don't necessarily agree that maybe they should still be coal miners maybe but give them jobs in green energy or whatever if he can do that 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 would be amazing for these people um, so hopefully he can follow through on his words. Yeah, okay. Running your business and all the work you do with your clients and like the, the stuff we were just talking through about the economy and <laughs> how do you find your Zen moments? You, you, you said you touched on before you meditate. Is that? Yeah. So I um, so I'm a person of faith. So um, I find a lot of self-reflection time during church. I go to church on Sundays. Um, I pray in the evenings, which is my, I mean, which is pretty much the same thing as meditation. Every every time of the day? I mean, sorry, the same time of the day every day? Yeah, in the evenings, yeah. Yeah, and um, and I also have, I'm recently married, and I have an amazing supportive husband who is uh, so open to letting me process externally and talk to him about things, and um, he's a great listener, so you know, I, I find um, joy and just re- fill my cup with with time spent with him. Okay, and and your, your faith uh, is that is that an, an, an anchor in your life that gives you a connection? To, Always to that has faith? been. Yeah. yeah, it gives me hope yeah. um, and and helps with my optimism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good, and 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 that's a, obviously a community that you belong to. As well, and you had yeah. that faith in your life yep. as a child as well. And yes, I did. It. Yeah, I'd say I'm much more connected to it though as an adult. Yeah. Um, it, as a kid, it felt like something I had to do, yeah. um, and now as an adult, it's something I get to do. And uh, and I found also like what what faith means to me. It's not for me. It's not really the tradition of. Uh, what people might say is like Christianity, like going to church, taking communion. It's not, I'm not a religious person. I'm a faith-filled person. Can you explain that, please? Sure. So, like to me, um, religion is uh, filled with tradition, and there's nothing wrong with tradition. I think people um, like it's a like you go to church on Sunday and you listen to a sermon and you take communion. That's not really what fills me up. What fills me up is uh, knowing that there's. Uh, a higher power that as uh, some some um, that can I can tap into to help me out um, and to give me comfort in that everything's going to be okay, yeah, okay. Um, and get me through some hard times. So for me, it's more like a spiritual thing than it is about going through the tradition of saying singing a hymn or hearing the first lesson and the second lesson. So it's it's more about the the faith than it is the um, acts. Okay, and but you go to church every Sunday. Not every Sunday. Not every Sunday. We're <laughs> um, going wine tasting this Sunday, so yeah. I mean, the summertime's busy, but yeah. yeah, I go to church when when I feel like it's something that um, is I, is needed. So I, I go probably like twice a month or so, um, and then I also um, online. There's a great church uh, that I used to go to when I lived in Cincinnati, Crossroads, and I listen to their sermons online on Sundays sometimes as well. So it's just whatever fe- I feel like. My soul needs. That's excellent. That's great. We started off uh, with you as a young girl with your sister playing Barbies. <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> <for> imagination. <laughs> if 
you were providing advice to to young people that could be school aged children or or people in their early 20 somethings what's your advice to them about having a successful life career or whatever yeah i would say don't be afraid to dream big like i have watched a lot of people um peers uh close friends make decisions because they were so fearful of either failure or uh, or maybe you know something when it would feel uncomfortable and it wouldn't work out or whatever it may be uh, and yeah I always have to think like okay what's the worst that's gonna happen mm. like what's the worst that's gonna happen like it's can't, it's not gonna be that bad um, so starting a business like okay after a year it fails I go back to corporate America all right that's kind of how I approached knowledge hound um, moving to a new city okay like I give it a year and I'll move back you know like what you have to think like what's the worst that's gonna happen yeah. so take take risks um, and dream big that's good thank you and yeah if it does go bad it won't be that bad Right. Is that right? Yeah. You know, I think and you'll fear, learn and you'll get that story out of it. Exactly. It's, the same. it's like the anticipation of it is the worst. Yeah. It's like just do it and then you'll be like, oh, yeah, I guess I failed at it, but it wasn't that bad yeah. when I failed. It's interesting because we, we, we've been, our business has been going for 14 years at the end of this year and I have people, I'm friends and, and associates that I'll, I'll catch up with and they can be in their 40-somethings. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do when I, when I grow up. And you're thinking, well, you better pick a door and, and do something. But yeah. I'll... I'll I wonder if it is that, yeah, just of, of picking a path and just 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 rocking it and and just going forward and and being willing to to build that into your story through life and and, and living a life worth living, really, isn't it? Really, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I think it's about like adopting maybe that lean startup kind of process, which is fail fast. Yeah. You know, be like, okay, I'll try it. That didn't work. Got don't, it. Don't fail too big. Don't. Yeah, yeah right. We'll get calculated <laughs> failure, right? Yeah. 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 That's right. That's excellent. How can people find you, Christy, on social uh, media, etc.? The best way to follow, thing is to follow me on LinkedIn. Um, and I'm at Christy. I think I'm, yeah, I'm just Christy Zolke on, knowledge, uh, on uh, LinkedIn. And then um, I'm on Twitter. I'm at, at Z-U-L-K-10. Um, so yeah so feel free to follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn okay thank you so much yeah thank you all the best hey Jason here to say goodbye until next time please subscribe to Real People via iTunes your favourite podcast platform while you are there please leave a review if you're interested in receiving our every Friday same time emails on everything human centred customer focus entrepreneurialism and thinking different popular articles by me, the Square Holes team, and special guests who have included Professor Barry Bergen, Christy Anthony, and Suet Anantula. Please go to squareholes.com forward slash blog to read and join our email list. You can also follow me, Jason Dunstone, on Twitter or your favourite social media. Thank you for listening. Uru. Uh-huh.